0: It's been outwardly a lovely autumn day, turning of the seasons, a little bit of the fog coming in and going out and leaving patches of sunlight, some cool breeze, and you have made it through a day, your first day. If this is your first retreat, congratulations. Those of you who have come back, you knew what you were getting into, so it's your own fault. And this evening, what I'd like to speak about is both practical and visionary, um, to speak in some way to those who are experienced practitioners, um, and also to those for whom this is the first retreat. Wes has suggested when we were talking about the theme of the Dharma teaching this retreat, um, that we take up the topic of identity and use it as a lens to understand the practice of mindfulness and loving kindness of breath and body, all the systematic trainings that we'll do. So we will take up that theme. And I'll start with a poem from Juan Ramon Jimenez. Yo no soy yo, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. The one who will remain standing when I die. And it speaks to one of the most central Zen koans that one receives on entering the Buddhist training in the Zen tradition, which is, what is your original nature or your original face or who were you before your parents were born? What is your identity in this mysterious world? And so you take your seat here on this retreat, like the Buddha, under your own tree of enlightenment in this human incarnation. And the word Buddha means one who is awake. And the fact that Stephen Batchelor, a good friend of ours and wonderful translator and Buddhist scholar, says the word enlightenment is a pretty bad translation of the Sanskrit and Pali words that speak of what happened for the Buddha and that a much better word is um, awakening that the Buddha awoke to see the way things are. So you take your seat, halfway between heaven and earth, with the same predicament as the Buddha, you are born into a human body and into a human incarnation. And not only that, it is, as I like to say, those of you who've heard me speak before, it's weird. You're weird, you know that, but that's not the point. The point is that it's more toweringly weird than that, because you got born into this body with wiggly things at the end of its limbs, little vestigial claws, right, and a vestigial tail. Just, you can't wag it, but it's there. And the hole at one end into which you stuff dead plants and animals regularly and grind them up, glug them down through the tube, right? And you did walking meditation today, which is basically Bipedal motion is falling one direction and catching yourself and falling another direction and catching yourself. It's really bizarre. It is. And then, you know, you have ears and all these kind of very vulnerable and sensitive organs to take in sight and sound and so forth. And I can say Golden Gate Bridge and you can picture it. And nobody knows how that happens. Yeah, there's the sodium-potassium balance, change in the, you know, from the auditory vibrations that go into the auditory part of the brain and so forth. But nobody knows how your consciousness, in fact, nobody knows what consciousness is, actually. And here you are. And not only that, here you are for a while. And then you're not. And that's really bizarre, because it seems like you're really here, doesn't it? And then it w- w- won't be that way anymore. All right, so, or, if you don't think that's weird, I mean, there's the other stuff, like the fact that you've got fur in certain places and not in others, right? Or you're losing it, in my case. But um, pay attention when you're making love. If you do, it's really fantastic and completely bizarre this is how we make new people, you know? And if you pause in the middle and kind of just say, oh, I mean, we don't always make new people that way. There are different ways of making love, but often that is the way people get made. And it's pretty strange, you know? And then another human being appears. Okay, so how did you get in there? And who are you? Now, we've undertaken this ancient training it goes back thousands of years of mindfulness, mindful attention, and being mindful um, in the most wonderful way uh, now has been studied in the last couple of decades or more, as I said last night. there are three thousand papers and a thousand studies, and um, you know much of the best of modern neuroscience, and studying this shows that through mindfulness there is Enhanced clarity and increased presence versus mind-wandering, although you might not believe it today, but it actually develops that way. Elizabeth Blackburn's work and Norman Farb. And greater focus, even academic performance goes up after a little bit. Um, And improved emotional regulation and stronger resiliency, better able to approach challenges and conflicts. The work of Cliff Cliff Saron and Davis and so forth, and more access to compassion, and improved immune function, neural protection, more rapid healing, and increased integration of different dimensions of our capacities, executive function, studies, so forth. All that's very good, right? Um, And you learn to be mindful so you can be more balanced, less stressed, more pliant and flexible and responsive rather than reactive to things, um, so that you can be present, as it said, with more uh, clarity and attention. And um, even though it doesn't seem like much is happening for some of you on the first day, attention comes and goes, it's like Sharon Salzberg, our dear friend and colleague who was teaching metta practice, in Oakland, it, Jerry Brown had a center near Jack London Square. and People would sit and do their metta practice, and then they would go out and walk on the streets and do loving-kindness meditation for everybody who walked by, um, in a quiet way, not deliberately looking strange, but just sort of silently. And one woman had a terrible time with it, just wasn't working, and she felt the opposite, which it can bring up. I'm no good, a lot of self-judgment, can't do this. But she kept trying to do it anyway, and she was walking on, across the street when the train came in, the commuter train to the station there, and this guy walked down the long platform and she tried meta, but she started judging herself i 'm no good, he looks so uptight he 's hurrying you know why can 't people just slow down and all that judgment, um, But she tried to stay with her Meta anyway, and then he walked up to her and he said, "You know excuse me ma'am i 've never done this before, but i 'm come to Oakland." to face a really difficult situation, and you seem so loving and peaceful, and I just want to ask if you would pray for me." And she thought she was a failure, you know. So what happens is that as you practice it, you don't even know, it's like water on a stone. Something starts to happen. So these are all the beautiful practical sides. You get more balance, you come into the present, you know, little by little more fully, greater resiliency. But there's another dimension. And the Buddhist texts begin with the words, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember who you really are. And this is the more mysterious, vast dimension that mindfulness is not just to pay better attention when you're eating your broccoli or driving or, you know, speaking with someone. But it's opening beyond the small sense of self that we take ourselves to be to the vastness of mystery itself. And I like to hold up this birthday card I got the drugstore birthday card, the Dalai Lama's birthday party, and he's unwrapped this big present and you can't see anything, all the wrappings on the ground, and he's smiling and laughing. It says, Wow, nothing, just what I always wanted, right? <laughs> and in fact, it's mostly what we're doing here in this other, more mysterious way, is by coming into the present, we're making space to be with what is, rather than with the past and future and plans and remembering all that other stuff, to actually make space to see the mystery of life itself. And as we do, it becomes magnificently beautiful, and also kind of terrifyingly ephemeral. The Diamond Sutra, Thus show you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a dream. And you start to pay attention, and thoughts, feelings, sounds, sensations, your walking period, your sitting period, stuff arises, the whole period arises, and then it disappears. Trudy talked about it before we went to lunch. She said, pay attention to chewing your food, and there it is, this whole flavor, tongue and mouth, all that stuff and then you swallow it and it's gone. It goes into the void or wherever, your stomach, that was the void. But things happen and they disappear. O monks, said the Buddhist of and nuns, suppose a person who was not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges River as they floated along and watched them carefully, examined them and they would appear empty and unreal, insubstantial. In the same way does the meditator behold bodily phenomena, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, formations, states of consciousness, and examining them carefully, they appear, they arise and vanish equally, insubstantially empty and void of any substance. Isn't that wild? What happened today? It's gone. And what we have is the reality of the present. Past is memory, future, an idea. What we have is now. So we come into this mystery of the present. Now, how do these two pieces fit together? The mindfulness of attention and careful resiliency and so forth with this vastness. My teacher Ajahn Chah, after wandering through the forests of Laos and Thailand and doing a number of years of ascetic practice and jhana, samadhi and visions and insight, went to see the greatest master of his time and laid out all the experience he's had and he had in his eight or ten years of training to get some advice. And the master listened and said, eh, you've missed the point after all that work. He said, those are just experiences. And experiences are what we call changing conditioned conditions. And what the Buddha pointed to was the unconditioned. Sight, sound, taste, smells, great meditation experience, terrible experience. They're all changing conditions. Instead of focusing on the changing conditions, turn your attention to the one who knows. Rest in the awareness itself. Become The consciousness, rather than the experiences, rest in the timeless consciousness that is your true nature. And then you will find liberation. Now, that's kind of a highfalutin instruction, although you can try it. But you actually already understand it quite well. And the image I like to use is this. You look in the mirror, no matter whatever age you are here, you look in the mirror and you notice sometimes that you've grown older than you were, right? Even if you're still young, you look a little older than you were a few years before, right? But the weird thing is that you don't feel older, right? You know that experience? And that's because it's only the body that has aged the body exists in time. It's born and it's little and it grows bigger and it eats stuff and defecates and does all the things that bodies do and gets bigger and so forth. It lives in a certain cycle of, of the world of form. But in that moment of looking in the mirror and you look and you say, hmm, a little older than it was you know, a few years ago, looks different. There is a witnessing consciousness that knows that the body, like that first poem I started with, isn't exactly who you are. You rent it, you use it, you treasure it, you value it. It's a fabulous thing to have human incarnation. But it's not exactly who you are. And then, if you listen to the Buddha's teachings, he says mindfulness, mindfulness, my friends, is truly liberating. Now, how can mindfulness be liberating? It's liberating because when you're with experience, you're less reactive to it. So there's that, here's fear or judgment or confusion or pain or pleasure, you can be balanced with it. But it's more deeply liberating. It's the most beautiful medicine because it allows you to shift your identity from thinking that you have to fix and change experience to be the space of loving awareness itself. And say, wow, this is really amazing, isn't it? Here's joy or sorrow or gain or loss or pleasure or pain. And mindfulness allows you to become the space of awareness that knows what is so, the one who knows, without being trapped, lost, confused. So as I said last night, the question isn't the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity, and that this isn't so much a self-improvement game, but rather an invitation to take your seat as the Buddha and look at human life and human incarnation. Poem for you. At IMS, our center in the East Coast, um, during the three-month retreat, um, when it gets in the winter and very the trees are bare, People will stand out in the back of the building with seeds in their hand for the birds. And this is Mary Oliver's experience called Winter and the Nuthatch. Once or twice, and maybe again, who knows, the timid nuthatch will come to me if I stand still with something good to eat in my hand. The first time he did it, he landed smack on his belly as though his terrified legs wouldn't cooperate. The next time he was bolder and became absolutely wild about the walnuts. But there was a morning I came late and guess what? The nuthatch was flying into a stranger's hand. To speak plainly, I felt betrayed. I wanted to say, mister, that nuthatch and I have a relationship. It took hours of standing in the snow before he would drop from the tree and trust my fingers. But I didn't say anything. Nobody owns the sky or the trees. Nobody owns the hearts of birds. Still, being human and partial, therefore, to my own successes, though not resentful of others fashioning theirs, I'll come tomorrow, I believe, quite early. (laughs) And so you start to hear what Oscar Wilde called the tainted glory of humanity. You know, our love and our attachments and our fears and our, our magnificence and that they're all woven together. This is the desire realm the, that you're born into. And it's a realm of paradox. Like the poet Alison Luderman, my friend, she writes, you know, of the desire realm. It's kind of like being on a diet and hiding the chocolate chip cookies. Meanwhile, you're the only person in the world who knows where those chocolate chip cookies are hidden. You know, there's some way in which We live in the world of desire, and the point isn't to get rid of it. The Buddha tried that, and that was not successful. The point is to become wise with this life that we've been given. So, these teachings are actually practical, and they point to two different dimensions, especially to two different dimensions of our experience. This is a little poem that I got from Trudy, thank you, of Mary Oliver again. She writes, for years and years I struggled just to love my life. Two lines, this poem. First line, that's about half of spiritual practice right there. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. You could do that for the whole retreat, it would be worthwhile. And then the butterfly rose weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said and vanished into the world. And that's like T.S. Eliot's line, teach us to care and not to care. And so we live in this human paradox. Mindfulness teaches us to care in the world of form. It teaches us to live through the paramitas they're called, the, the development of human capacities of patience and compassion of virtue or integrity to see the truth and speak the truth, as Trudy said last night in the precepts that we talk, of dignity, of dedication, of understanding that the seeds we plant become what grows. So half of the Buddha's teachings are how to live wisely with integrity and dignity and compassion and care and dedication. That's the kind of the development of our human incarnation. And the other half is the half teaches to care and then not to hold on in that poem. As the butterfly said, don't love your life too much and vanished into the world. And so it is the teachings of impermanence and equanimity. This from the Anguttara Nikaya where it says, where are you, Anguttara? It seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. And so then you begin to find that there is a wisdom bigger than holding on to things that are impermanent. The wisdom of Insecurity. So in this not holding, there comes the teachings of equanimity in the changing of seasons. There comes the teachings of perspective, of deep time, where the Buddha sits, and whether you take it literally or mythologically, and speaks of a hundred thousand mahakalpas of lifetimes, of birth and death and birth and death. And if you don't want to take it literally, you can just see each breakfast as a new Incarnation. Every morning at breakfast you're born again. What will you do with this day in this life? Every moment is new. Or of selflessness, that what we take to be ourself, the small sense of self, with certain ideas we have, and it changes all the time. In the Time magazine issue of Neuroscience, in the big letter box, you know, with all the text that they have, it says, After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there's no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply does not exist. (laughs) So that's the neuroscientist's perspective about it. But this not holding or not clinging is also described as the deathless, that which is beyond birth and death, So a few years ago, I was teaching at UCLA on a big conference of Eastern and Western psychology together with Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh. And he told the story of being up in his hermitage in the mountains um, in Vietnam uh, the year after his mother died. And he said he loved his mother very much, and the year that she died was tremendous grief for him for a long time. And there he was lying in his hermitage asleep and he woke in the middle of the night from the brightness of the moonlight shining on his skin and realized that he had been dreaming of his mother. Talking with her, sitting with her. He said she looked so young and beautiful her hair flowing down. It was as if she had never died. And he woke up, and he realized that she hadn't died. I knew that my mother was still with me. It was so clear. I understood that the idea of having lost my mother was untrue. It was obvious in that moment that my mother is always alive in me. So I opened the door and went outside, and the hillside was bathed in moonlight. The tea plantation, my hut, was there. I walked slowly between the rows of tea plants, and notice my mother was still with me. She was the moonlight caressing me as she had done so often, very tenderly and sweetly, wonderful. And each time my feet touched the earth, I knew my mother was there with me. I knew this body was not mine alone, but a living continuation of my mother and father and grandparents and great-grandparents of all my ancestors. These feet, that I saw as my feet were actually our feet. Together, my mother and I were leaving footprints in the damp soil. And this is also true. So yes, we are separate and individual in certain ways. And in other ways, that separateness is a fiction. And who we are is related to a whole so much bigger than that small, Separate sense of self. Now, how does this work in a practical way, not as some philosophy that you have to believe? How does it work in relationships? It's really simple. If you cling a lot in relationship and try to grasp, whether it's your children, your partner, your employees, whatever it is, they don't like it. You'll notice, or you try and control them, and it doesn't work terribly well. On the other hand, if you bring yourself to that relationship with dedication or love or commitment, rather than clinging or wanting it to be a certain way for you, then that relationship can flower and blossom. Mindfulness, and you can see it in this first day, and the first days of the retreat have, for some people, a lot of release that begins to happen. You sit and you feel your breath and you feel about two breaths and then the attention wanders and you come back and wanders again and it goes off to memories and plans and unfinished business that rises. You know, you sit here minding your own business and then the things that are unfinished and you show themselves. If you haven't grieved some loss because you've been too busy, you sit quietly and the tears will come. So Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi holy fool, Went into the bank to cash a check one day, and they asked, Could you please identify yourself? So he reached into his pocket, pulled out a small mirror, said, Yeah, that's me, all right. <laughs> and that's really how the breath works. You become present for this life breath, as Wes guided us this morning to feel the body interbreathing with the world. And as you feel the breath, It becomes like a mirror in the sense that there you're feeling the breath. And because you're present then, you notice the sadness or grief or the tension you carry in your body or the thoughts that keep going back to this situation or this creative idea or something. The breath helps you actually to see what's happening. So you sit. And what do you notice along with the breath? Well, sometimes you notice, as somebody said, that you get sleepy. In one monastery, it's not judged. Sleep is called the poor man's nirvana, right? It's just your body saying, I'm tired, give me a little rest. Or you notice that there's tension. Oh my gosh, I'm meditating wrong. I've got so much tension in my shoulders or jaw or back. But you know, it's not from meditating wrong. You're sitting quietly, minding your own business, and then the places that you hold in your body start to reveal themselves. Because all the times you've been busy and get in conflict and tighten your jaw or your back or whatever it is, it gets stashed in there. And then you sit quietly and your body says, hey, remember me? And it wants to release and open. So mindfulness allows you to be present for what wants to open in the body whatever it happens to be. And this from Tamara Engel, practitioner who died a couple of years ago of cancer. She writes, my days are short and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, which was much, but also the hard parts for every bored and restless sitting, and every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now even as I face my death. And so you learn a kind of presence and openness to the pleasures of the body and the pains of the body by bringing this loving awareness, not just to the breath, but to what wants to disentangle itself. And sometimes it's the physical pains, you know. Sometimes you go out and you do your walking meditation and it feels so good to move your body and step outside there and get a little relief from the sitting. Sometimes you do the walking meditation and it feels unbelievably tedious. Do I have to do more? You know, back and forth. Can I go have tea? Maybe I should just go back to my room and take a nap, you know? You get bored or restless or lonely. Good. Be bored. You know, because otherwise, if you're afraid of your boredom or your loneliness, as soon as you get bored or lonely at home, what do you do? Open the refrigerator, right? Get online something because you can't be with yourself. So here you walk, and as you do, the body starts to teach you and open up. The poem from Eduardo Galeano he writes The church says the body is a sin. You remember that one. Science says the body is a machine. The marketplace says the body is good business. The body says, I am a fiesta. And so what happens as you meditate, yes, there's the tension and the opening and the healing part, but then there also can come joy. And some of us are awfully loyal to our suffering, you know, and not really used to allowing joy or ease or what is that strange feeling I'm having? Oh, hmm, contentment? What's that, you know? And so all these beautiful states start to open and you want to pay attention to them and dwell in the joy and allow the moments of contentment, allow the ease and well-being also to nurture your spirit. Or you're practicing along, minding your own business, whoops, and then a feeling comes. You know that realm of feelings, it's not just the body, right? and i have a list somewhere of 500 feelings affectionate ambitious aggressive anguished ambivalent angry amused amorous aversive antagonistic antsy apathetic apoplectic anxious appreciative argumentative adamant addled amazed blissful broken-hearted bonkers bored bad belligerent calm cheerful You know, it's amazing we have this river of feelings that comes through us. And usually we're just swept away or lost in it or don't notice it and just kind of act it out. But here you actually get to pay attention to the feelings and notice them. So fear comes and you go, oh, fear. Fear, this is what fear feels like. Joy comes, oh, this is joy. And by letting yourself experience and feel what's here, the, the capacity for presence grows in you. And you become able to be more human, which is to say, you're able to bear your measure of sorrows and your magnificence, the ocean of tears and the unbearable beauty and all of the mystery of life, like the Buddha, you can become present for. And if you don't, and I always talk about this, It's kind of a political act as well as a personal one. Yes, to become present lets you become alive for yourself and others. But James Baldwin also writes, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and fear so stubbornly is that they realize that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so we project our pain on the communists the immigrants, the Muslims, the enemy de jour, it doesn't matter, you know who they are. Um, because we can't bear our own fear or insecurity or vulnerability, but to be human is to be vulnerable. And to take your seat as the Buddha is to acknowledge that and also know that there's something so much bigger, that timelessness that Thich Nhat Hanh speaks of, that you already know. So there's something brave and critical about coming into a wise relationship with your body, with the domain of feelings, with the life you've been given. And then, of course, there's the mind. Oh, my gosh. The cartoon from the New Yorker that shows the car crossing the vast Utah desert with the roadside billboard that says your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? (laughs) Meditation, kind of described right there of a poem for you. Because your thoughts have no pride at all and they'll tell a million stories, they'll do anything. And the point of mindfulness is to move from your thoughts to the direct experience. It's not that thoughts are bad, you can use them, they'll always be there I assure you. But instead of living in thoughts, thoughts make a good servant but a poor master. So here's a poem from Ellen Bass, another great poet called Phone Therapy. I was relief, I think she was a social worker or something. I was relief once for a doctor on vacation and got a call from a man on a windowsill. This was New York, 26 stories up. He was going to kill himself, he said. I said everything I could think of. When nothing worked, when the guy was still determined to slide out that window, and smash his delicate skull on the indifferent sidewalk. Do you think, I asked, you could just postpone it until Monday when Dr. Lewis gets back? (laughs) The cord that connected us, strung under the wildly busy streets, the pizza parlors, taxis and limos, women in sneakers carrying their high heels, drunks lying asleep, that endless coiled wire waited for the waves of sound. In the silence, I could feel the air slip in and out of his lungs, and the moment when the motion reversed, like a goldfish making the turn at the glass end of its tank. I matched my breath to his, slid into the water, and swam with him. Okay, he agreed. Okay. Do you think I asked you could just postpone it until Monday when Dr. Lewis gets back? It's brilliant, really, isn't it? And yet that's really what happens when you sit. You know, your mind comes and it wants you to jump off all kinds of things and does all kinds of stuff to you. And then there's that moment where you say, oh yeah, this is just a thought, isn't it? You know, thank you for your opinion. And then you come back to the next breath or the next step. And gradually, what you find is that mindfulness allows you to become intimate with the present without judgment. You remember Julia Child's instruction. She said, when you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can just pick it up. Who's going to know? And it's more or less the same with the breath. You know, (laughs) tension goes off. You come back to your breath. When... Bill Moyers did a series uh, a few years ago on death and dying, dying on your own terms, about hospices. Um, he had a young film crew that he was working with for public TV, and he got concerned, what are these you know, 20 lighting people and camera people and gaffers and all the folks who were working with him, what are they going to do marching into a hospice? Many of them had never seen anybody who was that sick or dying before, so he called good friend Frank Ostaszewski, who started the Zen Center Hospice Program, and they went to do a little bit of a training. And Frank Franco talked about what it was like to be with people who are dying. That actually, um, it's a privilege um, because you can't really do much for them. You know, they don't need anything in the way people normally do except the genuineness of your presence. That's all. You know, you can't have some idea or program. There's no more emergencies. They're just going through this extraordinary process. Um, and that it's okay and that it's natural. And he described the kinds of people they might meet and deaths, and then he said, here, here's the next step. And he passed around a series of eight by 12 black and white photos taken by this brilliant photographer <laughs> at the Zen Center Hospice um, over the years of people who'd gone there and who had died. And everybody got one. And then he led them into a kind of meditation of looking carefully at the person in the photograph. Often they were kind of gaunt, you know, and talked about who these people might have been and that they were now dying. And the person who'd taking the pictures, had lived at the hospice for a while doing this, so he really captured some spirit. And they all got to sit with these pictures for quite a time, just looking and contemplating. And at a certain point, Frank said, all right, now pass your picture to the person on the right. And nobody wanted to let go of their picture because they'd already fallen in love with the person in front of them. Just to look in those eyes, even in the photograph and be present in that way and realize, oh, this is a human life. Oh, it's so precious and so beautiful. And so Zen master Dogen, Japanese great Zen master said, to be enlightened is to become intimate with all things or to be awakened is to become intimate. And in this way, becoming aware of your breath, the first step in our meditation, is an invitation to the intimacy with your body, with feelings, with the play of thoughts and the mind. All of it witness with loving awareness. All of it from the place of being the one who knows. Now to do this practice also requires absolutely critically that you approach yourself with loving kindness. That you approach what happens with metta and compassion? I taught some retreats with friends, Michael Mead, Mali Domasome, Luis Rodriguez, men's retreats, um, for kids coming out of uh, street gangs, among other people who were there. And when these young men came in and heard, they were coming on this retreat, and they were gonna hear poetry, because Luis is an amazing poet, (laughs) And mythology from Michael Mead. Fortunately, he's a drummer, too, so there's a little music. And meditation. They, like, turned their hats backward, pulled their hoodies up, you know, like, man, I'm out on the street, people have nine millimeters, and you want to give me some damn poem or meditation. You know, give me something real. So before we could start, said to them, you know, here we are in this room, But there are a lot of those of us here who we haven't honored. So we took a candle and put it on the table in front and said, would you go out in the parking lot and pick up a stone for every young person you know who's been killed or died? And some of these guys came in with their hands full of stones, more they knew more dead people than a young person should know from the war in their neighborhood, the undeclared war, gang wars and drive-bys and shootings. And then they were asked simply to put the stone there and say the name of each person. This is RJ and this is Tito and this is, you know, all the names of their homies. And the minute they did that, it's as if the room change from being some combat place, yeah, what are you going to teach me, to a temple, to a holy place. Because the, the things that they'd lost were being honored. And the things that touched their souls in some way were being illuminated with a holding of care, of compassion. And they realized, okay, this is a place where we can actually be real with our life. But the only way we can be real is if there is a field of compassion. Otherwise it won't open in us. There's The shame, the guilt, the self-defensiveness, the inadequacy, the self-judgment that there's so much of in us. It's why I'm using this word loving awareness, why we need to marry mindfulness and kindness, because only then can we really open to the mystery of our life. So this is the intimacy of mindfulness. But yet, when we ask, who are you? Who are you really? You are not limited by history or conditions or circumstances. When Nelson Mandela walked out of 27 years of Robben Island prison with such graciousness, and forgiveness and magnanimity and dignity. When Aung San Suu Kyi, who was just coming, traveling in San Francisco and Washington, New York, picked up her Nobel Prize swinging through Oslo, when Aung San Suu Kyi walked out of 17 years of house arrest with a heart of loving kindness, you can put the body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. And who you are is not limited by the circumstances of your life. So, when Ramdas was asked at one point why he was doing this weird Hindu teaching, you know, because he had his beads and beard for a while, and Baba Ramdas in his white robes and chanting Sri Ram and things like that, wasn't he, you know, raised Jewish? And what about his Jewish upbringing? Uh, like I had, he was bar mitzvahed and went through, you know, traditional Jewish upbringing, Reformed Judaism. And he said, "Yeah, when I grew up, that I had a Jewish upbringing. Although it wasn't, it was more about good deeds and things like that. There wasn't a lot of meditation. But now I realize the Jewish tradition is full of the richness of the Kabbalah and the mystical trainings of the Hasids and all this beautiful stuff." He said, "So I really respect it." pause. He said, but remember, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> and there's something kind of witty about that, but also something profound about it. Because who you are is not just limited to your parents of this incarnation anyway. And so you sit and you hear all the stories about who you're supposed to be who your parents wanted you to be, who the society wanted you to be, what they thought about your sexual orientation or, or your you know, body shape or the way you thought or felt or your creativity. You know all the judgments you got because you were in third grade and whatever happened. I won't talk about that trauma, but anyway, something. But it's all in there, isn't it? and all the stories, and then the visions, and longing, and creativity, and desire, and judgments, and so forth. You see it all. Cartoon from Jules Pfeiffer shows a man sitting there pensively, I inherited my father's way of thinking and reflecting about things. He sits up, I inherited my father's style and way of moving, next thing, I inherited my father's attitudes and political ideas and so forth, last frame. And I inherited my mother's contempt for my father, right? (laughs) You can see it all wedded in those four little frames. But it comes to you, you know. Sometimes you sit and you feel that, you know, you're irredeemably bad and there's something wrong with you or you'll never make it or you haven't done it right or you're unlovable or you're sort of lovable but not enough. You know, or all the million stories, or you're fantastic. Hard to tell which is a kind of more um, dangerous story, right? You're really so cool. If you have that story, yeah, watch out. But anyway, because they're all stories, you know? And they're not really who you are. Who you are is so much bigger than the stories and so much more. Mysterious. My teacher Nisargadat in India said, Wisdom says I am nothing, love says I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. And you know this, you hear this, that's sort of like a little shorthand from Alice Walker. One day, when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me that feeling of being a part of everything, and I knew if I cut a tree, My arm would bleed, and I laughed and cried and ran all around the house. When it happens, you just can't miss it. And you've all had it, walking in the mountains or by the ocean or making love or being there at the birth of a child or the birth of your own child or sitting at the side of someone when they die, and their last breath and their spirit leaves their body, and it's the most extraordinary moment, silent and vast or taking sacred medicine, or listening to amazing music, and you know that you're not just this limited life, the small sense of self. That who you are is vast and timeless. And that you are the witness to this, and you'll see when you die, you wait and see. You float out of your body, and there's all that luminosity and stuff. You may not believe it, you'll see. And remember, I said to my dad, remember, I told you so, right, when it happens. But anyway, and then you will say, wow, that was an amazing incarnation, wasn't it? What a trip that one was. See where you're drawn to next. You'll see. I mean, you don't have to believe it, but you wait. Okay. So here is this paradoxical mystery that you are made of starlight and consciousness and that you get this incarnation and you need to honor it. You need to honor your male or female or transgender or whatever particular f- way your body is. You need to honor the particular race and ancestry you have. There's something magnificent in it. You know, you need to honor your particular gifts and capacities and the culture that you're in. And incarnation is amazing. It's only in the human realm that you can Eat French cheese and baked Alaska and have a child and watch a sunset over the Golden Gate Bridge. You need to be incarnate to have these experiences and fall in love or get divorced, you know, or all the other things that can happen. Right? This is it. This is human incarnation. It's magnificent. But the wisest sages say, yes, this is true. Love this incarnation because it is precious. But remember that it's not all of who you are. Remember your Buddha nature and your social security number, right? (laughs) That there is a vast freedom as well as the moments experience that you have. And this training allows you to be present for this life and also free in it. A couple more stories and then we'll end. Ananda, the beloved attendant of the Buddha, having done an errand at some distance, was passing through a village, quite thirsty, and the one thing monastics are allowed to ask for is water. So he went by the well and saw a young woman, Pakati, and asked her if she would please, she was drawing water, offer him a drink. And he said, Oh no, sir, I am too lowly born to give you water to drink. My presence would contaminate your holiness. And if you're born an untouchable in India, um, even your shadow falling on the food of a high caste makes it un- I- inedible. If you can imagine being a child born in that circumstance. So it's terrible. And Ananda looked at her kindly and said, I ask not for your caste, but for water please. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully. She gave Ananda the water and he thanked her and went her away, went away. And having learned that he was a disciple of the Buddha, she followed him there and observed him for some time and finally went to the Blessed One and said, Oh, let me dwell in this place and attend to Ananda and minister him, for I have come to love Ananda. And the Blessed One, understanding the emotions of her heart, said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness and respect you've seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And though you are born of the lowest caste, you will be a model for the noblemen and noble women of this world. Swerve not from this kindness and dignity and you will outshine the royal glory of kings and queens. And so when we remember who we are, we can see that same beauty in every other being. Nelson Mandela said, it never hurts to see the good in another person. They often act the better because of it. To see that magnificent spark or spirit that's in there and to play our part, to take your incarnation and make something beautiful of it. Not because it's all of who you are. Who you are is so much bigger. But because in another way, it is who you are. And you go out and you walk, you know, and the crows land in the tree by the dining hall and talk to each other. And because you're quiet, you hear the crows and you watch them in a way that you haven't since you were a kid, right? And you smell the bay leaves and the trees here and see the dry grasses that are thirsty. You can feel their thirst waiting for the rainy season to start. And you look at the sky, and sometimes it's azure blue, and sometimes it's robin's egg blue, and sometimes it's a pale, velvety color. And you walk out there quietly, and you feel like you're part of all the people who've ever meditated sometimes. Not yet, but it comes. Or all humans, or all beings, and you feel yourself with the worms and the coyotes alive. And you take your part. In this dance. And Yitzhak Perlman, one of the great violinists of the world, was um, a young boy. I think he was four years old when he got polio and was paralyzed so that he walks with crutches or assist in some way. I also had polio when I was seven or eight years old in the hospital. Paralyzed for a while, but fortunately I I got over it. Kind of amazing. But he didn't. But it didn't matter in another way because he took up the violin even though he needed the crutches to walk. And he was such a prodigy with it that he became this master. And some years ago, he was playing a concert in New York, the New New York Philharmonic at Lincoln Center and doing a... Violin Concerto, one of the Beethoven Violin Concerto, this amazing piece of music. And partway through, as he was playing, there was this crack, and one of his strings broke. And everyone in the hall could hear it, the whole audience. And everything became silent. Okay, what is he going to do? Is he going to try and go off the stage and you know, fix a violin? Will somebody come out and take his Stradivarius and give him some other violin to play? you know, what will happen? He sat quietly and closed his eyes as if meditating for a pause and signaled for the conductor to continue. And then he re-entered playing the concerto with an incredible passion and love that he gives to his music and purity. And he began reconfiguring the piece so that he could play it on three strings. And when he finished, everyone was just silent, kind of awe. And then they all stood up in this amazing applause, like great waves of the ocean. And finally it died down. He looked out, and he spoke not boastfully, but quietly, pensive. He said, you know, sometimes it is the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. And it's the violin, and it's his body, and it's your limitations and your beauty. And so you get to both inhabit this amazing life that you have with mindfulness and attention, with balance and care, and also with the sense of mystery, that who you are, you become the one who knows, the loving awareness, the witness, that who you are is not just limited to the conditions of your life but something so much more. And when you remember it, it affects everything you do. I believe, says Gandhi, in the unity of all things. And therefore, I believe that if one person gains, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. So let's sit for a moment.